You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every week and we promote and we defend public education. Now, we have a definition of public education, which you're going to hear again shortly in the program, but it's best to remember that public education is not just public in access, although that is terribly important. It is also public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it should be public in ownership and control. The assets of the public education system should belong to the public, to everybody. And it should be the only one that's publicly funded because it is the only one that is publicly accountable. But as we know, private schools are none of those things. And I think it's important to remember that to be public, you have to be all of those things. So we're going to go into our press release 986, remembering this because two great public school advocates, Bonner and Greenwell, have written a very interesting book and they are also writing articles promoting the idea that private schools should not be given public money unless they are open to all children and not allowed to charge fees, mainly not allowed to charge fees. But the dogs believe that this is only a partial solution to the state aid problem. Every time people with goodwill try to solve the state aid problem, that is the funding of private schools, which are private and which cause class and religious distinctions and sectarian problems in a society, every time there is an attempt to compromise with them, and there have been many attempts to compromise on this issue, they still win the day and they come out laughing with more money and with a more divided society because, in fact, there is no dealing with them, no dealing with them at all. So over to our press release 986. The common framework requirement of Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell is only a partial solution to the state aid problem. Thanks, Jean. This is press release 986, and you can find it at the DOGS website at www.adogs.info. In a recent book entitled Choice and Fairness, and in various articles, Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell are promoting the idea that all schools that receive public funding should be free to the user and prohibited from charging fees. They should be open to all children of all abilities and prohibited from excluding children based on entrance tests and other similar discriminators. They could continue to promote their specific religious or educational ethos, but would lose their public funding if they charged fees. 
They call for a common framework which ensures that in return for public funding, all schools take on commensurate public obligations. Only then will we slow and reverse the separation of students by family advantage into different schools and improve equity and overall student achievement. They admit that the Gonski reforms, even if properly implemented, have, if anything, exacerbated inequities in Australian education. Their full analysis, as presented in John Menadieu's Pearls and Irritations, is worth a careful analysis. Here it is. A Problem Bigger Than Rich Schools and Funding by Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell. It's easy to gain the impression that there are just two school sectors in Australia, elite private schools and public schools, the former being exclusive and overfunded, the latter inclusive and cash-strapped. True to a point, but in dwelling on this dichotomy, we are missing bigger policy issues that cry out for resolution. The contrasts between rich and poor schools are better known than ever. Just over the last few months, we've read about how private schools are crying poor while underfunded public schools suffer and how Sydney's top private schools rake in millions in donations and why we should just defund such schools. A more recent offering from Crikey's Maeve McGregor goes further. The very title of her article declaring that the school funding wars are over, rich people won and the country lost. Australia has indeed lost and it is a loss created by the way our framework of schools has evolved, far more than anything that goes on inside them. McGregor asks, do we truly comprehend the scale of what's at stake? She writes how the bonds of fairness and social contract have cracked under the weight of a series of attacks on public schools. In the process, our very segregated education system is defined by impenetrable barriers of class, privilege and wealth. While it might be explained in different ways, Australians have long known about the divides in our schooling. The content and tone of the above five articles eerily rep repeats a similar public discourse of 20 years ago. The gap between rich and poor is widening. The way we resource schools is the problem. Adequate and equity funding is the solution. Exhibit A is ivy-clad grammar up the hill. Exhibit B is the public school on the other side of town. Then along comes the Gonski Review, which is going to fix much of that. It generated high expectations, alas, which dissipated in the years of neglect which followed. Yes, we apparently all still be believe in equity, and there is a commitment to funding all schools to their schooling resource standard, the SRS, eventually, maybe. But almost none of the fundamentals of how Australia does schools have changed for over half a century. On the one hand, we have fully government-funded public schools, most of which are obliged to be open to every child from every family in every circumstance and location. They stand alongside and compete with almost fully funded private schools, which choose where and who they serve, and where enrolment is subject to payment of fees and usually a background check. The problem is compounded by rapid increases in their public funding, while their public obligations remain stuck in a time war. It's a perfect arrangement to create a system characterised, as McGregor attests, by class, privilege and wealth. And it's a system in which family and school socioeconomic status, SES, 
is increasingly determining school outcomes. This was confirmed only last week by yet more research. Murdoch University's Michael Skiffer found a school's socioeconomic status predicts the likelihood a student will achieve minimum literacy and numeracy benchmarks, and the impact on children's literacy and numeracy is dramatic. Attending a disadvantaged primary school costs half a term of learning per year for every student. This grows to one term of learning per year in secondary schools. The response of governments, including the current federal government, is to commission more reviews of anything but these fundamentals. It's even fair to argue that the purpose of many reviews is to distract from school education's terminal structural failure. The failure is both historical and endemic. In the 1970s, the Carmel Review knew that in creating a government-funded public-private system, we were taking risks. The Gonski Review didn't directly touch the problem. Hence, in 2023, we are still absorbed by the need to implement Gonski, chapter and verse, while remaining wedded to the structures that will always undermine what little progress we make. In the public domain, as evidenced by the rich versus poor narratives, all we seem to do is create and channel outrage. In the process, such narratives risk going too far in a distracting direction, while not going anywhere far enough in a search for solutions. It's arguably worse than that. Some public education advocates are wedded to the hope that the scenarios described by Maeve McGregor and others might be transformed by a more equitable SRS distribution of money alone. But what will really change? In Waiting for Gonski and Choice and Fairness, we argue that even if full, the full Gonski finally arrives, the unlevel playing field on which Australian schools currently operate will remain almost entirely unaltered. Publicly funded private schools will continue to charge fees as high as the market will bear and pick and choose their students. Even if we were to achieve what is euphemistically called needs-based funding, all the drivers of segregation would still be there, unaltered and untouched. Michael Skiffer, the researcher at Murdoch University who provided the most recent evidence of the problem, has also put his finger on the solution. Much more substantial reforms are needed to ensure every school is playing its part in educating all young Australians. This would require schools to be representative of their communities in proportion to their public funding. Secondary private schools receive 80 to 90% of the government funding public schools receive. They should enrol a similar percentage of the disadvantaged students that nearby public schools enrol. The biggest challenge is how to decouple school choice from family advantage. In Choice and Fairness, we propose that all schools that receive public funding should be fair to the user and prohibited from charging fees. They should be open to children of all abilities and prohibited from excluding children based on entrance tests and other similar discriminators. They could continue to promote their specific religious or educational ethos, but would lose their public funding if they charged fees. This is a brutally short summary of the full proposal, readily available in various forms. If just a one-sentence summary is needed, we call for a common framework which ensures that, in return for public funding, 
all schools take on commensurate public obligations. Only then will we slow and reverse the separation of students by family advantage into different schools and improve equity and overall student achievement. At first sight, the common public framework proposed in Choice and Fairness might seem like a radical and costly proposal, but it isn't really. Over two-thirds of non-government schools are already funded close to the same level as public schools, which enrol similar students. It is Australia's current school system that is radical in all the worst ways possible. It wouldn't be easy. While there is considerable variation within each sector, independent, Catholic and government schools in that order form a social hierarchy in almost every community. But if other countries have created school systems which provide diversity without generation, generating division and offer choice without amplifying socioeconomic segregation, why can't we? Do we really need more narratives that simply restate part of the problem? It's beyond time for a real debate about achievable solutions that address the most fundamental issues. In Choice and Fairness, we have proposed a common public framework for all schools. If there is a better way to address the socioeconomic segregation that's undermining our aspirations for equality, opportunity and achievement, let's hear it. So that was from Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell, who are the authors of Choice and Fairness, a common framework for all schools. Now, the dog's comment. Unfortunately, Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell's solution is unlikely to solve the inequity problem. It will only succeed, as all compromises have done since 1964, with pouring more billions into private schools, which will find a way around the segregation problem. Because division of children on the basis of class, creed and colour is their basic raison d'etre. Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell need to go back to a full definition of what a public school is, rather than grab one of its key indicia, namely open access, to children without discrimination, but not necessarily parents, teachers and other employees. Dogs remind our readers and listeners that a public school is one which is one, public in purpose, two, public in outcome. Three, public in access to children, parents, teachers and other employees. Four, public in ownership. Five, public in control. Six, public in funding. And seven, public in accountability. Private schools are currently none of the above. Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell are proposing that in return for full public funding, private schools are partially open in access. It's a nice idea predicated on a great deal of trust. Perhaps if they defined their idea of a common public framework to include all of the above indicia of a public school, their ideas of a compromise between two systems with opposite ideologies might have some hope of success. But as they have done since 1964, the private sector, and most particularly the religious bureaucracies, will grab the money and continue to divide the community, build up their assets at public expense, and laugh all the way to the bank, making public accountability a joke. The only answer to the state aid problem, as it always has been, is to take over the private schools, which the public purse is already paying for, and make them genuinely accessible and public in the seven ways listed above. If private schools wish to be genuinely independent, they should, 
in a democracy be free to be just that, but not at public expense. And that was press release 986. And you can find it at the DOGS website at www.adogs.info. Back to you, Jean. Well, uh, we've got a very interesting article, a good story and a bad idea. And Andy is going to read this for us. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. And today we're going to look at a book review uh, of a book from the ground up. How a community with a vision and a principle with a purpose created a thriving state school. And this review is by Tom Grenwell. Stephen Cook has a story that any school principal would love to be able to tell. A little over 15 years ago, the Victorian government closed the local high school in Albert Park, a well-heeled neighbourhood nestled between Melbourne CBD and Port Phillip Bay. Faced with competition from Melbourne Grammar, Wesley College, a handful of other independent schools and two academically selective public schools, enrolments had dwindled to fewer than 200 students. Amid concerns about academic standards, discipline and deteriorating buildings, the school's council and even its staff bowed to reality and voted in favour of closure. Today, Albert Park College is tightly zoned with more than 1,500 students, more than 200 staff and a series of campuses with names like Studio 120 and APC Lakeside peppered throughout the suburb. Students produce their own plays, organise literary festivals with big name writers, speak at major climate rallies and conferences and light up school functions with dance performances before going on to secure jobs at places like the Moulin Rouge, Cook tells us. In 2021, Albert Park College was voted Australian School of the Year. In his new book, From the Ground Up, Cook sets out not only to document this remarkable story of rebirth, but also to provide fellow principals and budding school leaders with a how-to manual, a manifesto designed to spark a revolution from below. The educational theorists and policy makers have had their chance, Cook claims. Now it's time for schools to lead the way with actions rather than words. On the face of it, this is an improbable claim, one that requires the reader to believe that what works in a place like Albert Park can work all across Australia. When Cook fleetingly attends to this objection, he protests that his community has lots of public and social housing mixed in with renovated terraces and many people who rely on social security benefits and lower wage jobs. But only 6% of students at the school come from the most disadvantaged quarter of the Australian population. This is more than at the nearby public selective school, 3%, or independent school, 1%. And it's a wonderful thing that around 100 students from very disadvantaged backgrounds are able to attend a flourishing school like Albert Park College. But it's another thing entirely to imagine that the strategies that work in this context can be readily applied by principals of schools where 26% or 46% or 66% of students are highly disadvantaged. Cook's own account makes it clear why this is so. He describes, for instance, the vital difference the significant voluntary levy makes in funding the annual literary festival, music festival, cabaret, musical, plays, dance performances, science competitions, debating program, senior school formal and graduation evenings, as well as underpinning our top class ICT. Then he points to the importance of elaborate fundraising. Cook recalls that when an extra million dollars was needed to build a liberal arts hub with cafe, library and open fireplace, he launched a 1000 club. A thousand people were willing to give up to a thousand dollars to make it happen. We thought it was crazily ambitious, but we raised $670,000 this way. And then there is the parent body in an affluent inner city community like this. Natural change agents, strong-willed, politically connected, media savvy, used to getting things done, people willing to volunteer professional expertise in the most valuable skills you can imagine. 
business, architecture, property management, politics, communications, and other fields. As it turns out, Cook is frustratingly elusive when it comes to the story of what happens behind the school gates and inside classrooms. And it is only when he shifts his attention to the interface between school and community that he moves into gear, laying bare the realities of how schools compete for the right students. But the thing about this aspect of his strategy, in which enrolment growth drives improved quality, is that it's inherently a zero-sum game. The schools that can attract more and more able and affluent students inevitably do so at the expense of other schools whose ever-shrinking student populations are increasingly made up of students from disadvantaged families. This is not a recipe for a revolution. It's the sorry recent history of Australian schooling in a nutshell. So the candid story Cook tells ultimately undercuts his larger argument that Albert Park College provides a formula for revolutionising Australian schools. As it is, for much of From the Ground Up, the reader is left guessing what really explains the school's dramatic transformation between 2006 and 2023. Eventually, finally, a partial answer does begin to suggest itself when Cook turns to the story of how an increase in enrolments can itself help create a successful school as much as vice versa. The old Albert Park College's fundamental problem, according to Cook, was that its few remaining students were mostly from the area's more disadvantaged families. That only compounded the challenge of turning the school around and arresting further enrolment decline. To put it bluntly, says Cook, describing the equation that had greeted him when he arrived on the scene, only by attracting middle-class families that place a high premium on education could we get ourselves in a position to lift up those from poorer backgrounds whose need for a good education was even greater. Looking backwards, Cook could see the wreckage of the old Albert Park School deserted by its own community, abandoned by parents, and voting with their SUVs. Looking forwards, the new iteration of the school still faced the same cutthroat competition from its well-resourced near neighbours. Cook had to persuade the good burgers of Albert Park to park their SUVs at the local public school, and there was no guarantee he would succeed. Our early intakes were on average from relatively low socioeconomic backgrounds, and we had to work hard to convince the whole community that APC was for them, he explains. In a similar vein, uniform-clad students constitute a critical marketing channel, effectively acting as brand ambassadors and social influencers in their local community. Cook describes how he engaged design and branding experts to create a colour palette that provides a consistent and professional aesthetic for the campuses, uniform and other touch points. The school's high-end and expensive uniforms, featuring a big A on the pocket, make it clear that Albert Park College is conceding nothing to the prestigious private schools it is competing with. The idea of school principal as marketing manager may seem unsavoury, but Cook is unapologetic. While many education policymakers think parents choose schools for their children based on the school standing in academic league tables, in reality, it isn't so straightforward, he confides. Experienced educators know that parents tend to form judgments according to common sense, often on first impressions. If first impressions can be decisive, then the website, the uniform, the polish of a school's reception, the view from the road or the look and feel of facilities on open night can determine whether a child is enrolled at your school or the one down the road. Of course, spin alone is not enough. Good marketers have to get the product and the delivery right as well. And we know that peers, parents and scale help mightily in creating a good product. So if the enrolment battle can be won, a virtuous cycle will likely ensue. Cook's marketing savvy has evidently enabled Albert Park College to achieve just this kind of momentum with entirely happy consequences. Cook might claim that he has shown how the Davids can take on the Goliaths and win. And it is a striking fact that Albert Park College has achieved its dramatic reversal of fortune with only half the funding per student of the high-profile private schools it has to compete with. Doesn't this show that it's possible to defy the odds, to kick goals even when the playing field is tilted against you? It's impressive for sure, but no, it doesn't alter the basic structural equation. 
For every school that increases its intake of the advantage and the able, another has to take on greater responsibility for educating the marginalised and disengaged. Highly sought after and successful public schools are widespread in the affluent suburbs of Australia's capital cities. Their locations provide them with a decisive advantage in terms of motivated and privileged student populations, accompanied by educated and affluent parent communities, as Cook's narrative richly illustrates. These human resources, peers and parents, and the social and cultural capital they bring can be as important as a school's income. But not only does this fact fail to make life easier for schools in less healed areas, it actually makes their task harder. In recording how he won at the game of school choice, Cook provides a revealing glimpse of the incentives and imperatives school principals face as they compete for enrolments and the methods with which they inevitably respond. His candour on the subject makes for a valuable account, but his claim that struggling schools can pull themselves up by the bootstraps by applying the solutions he has discovered in Albert Park and that all bureaucrats need to do is stop meddling is not only flawed, but dangerous. Such a conclusion discounts entirely the structural obstacle the zero-sum competition for student enrolments that is at the heart of Australia's educational woes and which much of Cook's story incidentally lays bare. So Tom Greenwell has um, delivered a fairly scathing review of this book. I think um, the principal in question, Stephen Cook, has unwittingly laid bare that in fact he's leveraging privilege and money to create a school that is basically for people with money and privilege in the first place. In terms of servicing the community or providing greater educational um, opportunity and outcomes for people from disadvantaged or lower socioeconomic backgrounds, this is a complete fail. Back to you, Jean. Well, we've been doing a lot of listening there and uh, they're all very interesting ideas too and thoughts. Thank you very much, Andy. I think it's time for a break. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Uh, we are such a huge representation in prison all over Australia. Statistically, it has to stop and it's gonna, not going to stop while you're building more beds in a prison. It's a Band-Aid. What about beds outside? Tune in to the 3CR during NAIDOC week at 11am each day from Monday the 3rd to Friday the 7th of July. We'll take you inside six Victorian prisons. Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, Barwon Prison, Fulham Correctional Centre, Loddon Prison, Marguerite Correctional Centre and Port Phillip Prison. To hear stories, songs, opinions and poems from the men and women inside while connecting with culture and community. The shows will be live on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. 3CR Digital and streaming via our website or the Community Radio Plus app. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars. Well, we hope you're still listening to the Jobs Program because Sol has got some facts and figures for you. The AEU, but it's also been on the ABC and elsewhere, is going to give us an article on the damning evidence of massive private school overfunding. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. So I have the AEU press release from the 22nd of June to read today, and it is entitled Damning Evidence of Massive Private School Overfunding. The full extent of the inequity in Australia's school funding system has been exposed 
with the internal Department of Education figures showing a massive overfunding of private schools. The figures are included in a departmental briefing prepared for witnesses appearing before the Senate estimates publicly released through Freedom of Information. The briefing states that 1,152 private schools will be overfunded to the tune of $3.2 billion over and above their public funding entitlement under the schooling resource standard. This overfunding contributes to the overall inequity of school funding, which sees more than 98% of private schools funded by the Commonwealth and state and territory governments above the SRS, and over 98% of public schools funded below the SRS, the education funding standard agreed to by all Australian governments in 2012. The following comments are attributable to Karina Haythorpe, Australian Education Union Federal President. We cannot continue to accept the deep inequity in school funding in this country, where private schools are overfunded by billions and public schools are underfunded by billions. It is public schools that enrol the vast majority of Australian students, and it is public schools that enrol disproportionately higher rates of students with additional needs, students that experience disadvantage and students with disability. If the Commonwealth and state and territory governments can afford to overfund private schools, then they can afford to fully fund public schools. If all Australian public schools had 100% of the schooling resource standard, then students from all backgrounds would benefit from smaller class sizes, additional teachers and more resources. The Albanese government must deliver on their election promise and deliver the pathway to full and fair funding for public schools as soon as possible. Definitely agree with that position over here at the dogs and and if you want more information about this, the Senate Estimates Briefing can be accessed through the Department of Education's FOI Disclosure Log and see specifically page 186 for this. Uh, back to you, Jean. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, we have been uh, indicating to our listeners over many weeks that um, the situation in the, funding, in the funding of education in Australia is grossly inequitable and is dividing our society along class and religious lines. But um, the AEU is not the only ones who are pointing this out to the review into funding of education in Australia and Canberra at the moment. The ABC has similar evidence to present. So let's listen to what the ABC reporters have got to say. The thorny question of school funding. More than a decade ago, the Gonski report called for wholesale reform. So have governments delivered? National education reporter Connor Duffy with the story. And push up. Hold it. Lift up your back, Mohammed. Chaos. Chaos. It's dance class at Para Hills High School in Adelaide's North. Up, 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 up. It's just fun and the kids get to work together and they end up relying on each other. There's a simple academic philosophy here. You can't have education without well-being and connection. So dance can be as important as literacy or numeracy. Because the dance can't be successful without each other. Keep moving. Keep we moving. really 
want everyone to find their tribe. Go, 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 partner! Elevating these students to brighter futures represents the promise of public education. Para Hills High ranks among the most disadvantaged in the country. 85% of students come from the lowest socio-economic brackets. We try to achieve the absolute best for students who sometimes come um, a little bit behind the able. Talk to me about something that you learned today. 16-year-old Year 11 student Zara was at risk of losing her transformative opportunity. She only turned up to school two or three times a week. Mornings I would wake up and I'd say to my dad, like, I don't want to go to school. I feel sick, but really I just didn't want to get out of bed. But do look up the ACES study. Zara is a beneficiary of the school's wellbeing program. She regularly meets with the school's youth worker and wellbeing officer, who are able to organise bulk build therapy with a psychologist. It's helped her come to trust and engage with her teachers and she dreams of being a criminologist. I feel great now, like I can actually like wake up in a good mood and I'm not like as in a way like depressed to come to school, like I actually want to come to school. Well that's out of reach for some families too. Students like Zara have come so far that today the state's education minister Blair Boyer is coming to check out the school's wellbeing space. More of like a homey space, so it's somewhere that we can come to when we're in distress or we can't cope with class. Successful as it is, the school's leaders say meagre budgets mean they can't get similar funding for all the students who need it. I'm really concerned about the gap between, say, private and public education that seems to be widening. It sometimes feels like our students are missing out. David Gonski is an eminent Australian. The much-vaunted Gonski reforms released 11 years ago were supposed to ensure private and public schools received the minimum amount of government funding to ensure a good education. The kids are learning not just how to control them, but how to program them. This year, public school budgets nationwide are $4.5 billion short of their Gonski minimum. They're really, really... In South Australia, the shortfall adds up to about $175 million. When it comes to At Parra Hills, it means the school's fledgling mental health program is not secure, reliant on outside charities and not available to all the students who need it. Well, every year that goes by where we don't get to that 100% and we don't see the vision of Gonski realised, it's another generation of kids that goes through our education system that don't have the supports for their learning and their well-being that they could have had. At public schools, states pay for 80% of costs and the Commonwealth 20%. Billions have flowed to schools, but no state's public schools have hit their Gonski minimum. The funding split is reversed for private schools, with the federal government paying 80% and the states 20%. Almost all of these schools have hit their minimum Gonski funding. About 40% of private schools are overfunded. I think a lot of people feel that upon the election of the Albanese Labor government that finally uh, the stars had a line to actually deliver Gonski. Uh, if that opportunity slips past, I think people will, not without um, good reason, uh, assume that uh, the odds of ever having Gonski fully delivered in the Australian public education system uh, have probably come and gone. The federal government's currently holding a wide-ranging schools review that includes funding. It's due to report in October. 
the Education Minister Jason Clare was unavailable for an interview. Scott Morrison has Labor went to the last election with an aspiration rather than an ironclad promise to deliver the Gonski money. Now there's pressure to make good. We have a very simple message for Minister Clare and for the Albanese uh, government, and that is it's time. We need to see this investment in our schools. The teachers' union is also calling for greater urgency from government. 7.30 can reveal a Department of Education Senate estimates brief released under freedom of information laws, discloses 1,152 private schools, about 40% of the sector, are receiving more than their Gonski recommended minimum, at a cost to taxpayers of about $3.2 billion. We think that if governments can afford to overfund private schools, then they can certainly afford to step up and fully fund public schools. Independent Schools Australia declined an interview request. Yes, well, that was Connor Duffy and the ABC program on the overfunding of private schools in Australia. And uh, we'll have a bit of a break before we go off to the United States and Northern Ireland with Jeff. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. Call 03 9419 8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward subscribe. Well, we hope you're still listening to the docs because Jeff is now going to take you over to the United States and uh, also to Northern Ireland. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. And we... We've got a couple of interesting stories today. The first one comes from the United States, where in the Diana Ravitch blog, she reports that the Supreme Court in the United States declines to rule on whether charter schools are public or private. Matt Barnum, says Diana Ravitch, writing in Chalkbeat, reports that the US Supreme Court declined today to rule on whether charter schools are public or private. The case at hand was a charter school in North Carolina that requires girls to wear certain types of clothing. If the school were deemed public, its rule would be considered discriminatory. If it were deemed private, the school could write its own rules about student dress. So the question remains open, and the Court of Appeals ruling that the school could not discriminate remains in place. The US Supreme Court declined Monday to hear a case that hinged on whether charter schools are considered public or private. The decision to punt indicates the highest court won't offer an early hint on the validity of religious charter schools. It also leaves in place a patchwork of rulings on whether the charter schools are considered private or public for legal purposes. But legal debates are not over. The issue will percolate and the Supreme Court will eventually hear a case, predicted Preston Green, Professor of Educational Leadership and Law at the University of Connecticut. The case, Charter Day School versus Peltier, focused on a dispute over a charter school's dress code. The classical school in southeastern North Carolina had barred girls from wearing pants as a part of an effort to promote chivalry, according to its founder. Backed by the American Civil Liberties Union, some parents sued over this policy. They argued that the dress code amounted to sex-based discrimination and is illegal under the 14th Amendment to the US Constitution. The school countered that it is not a government-run institution, so is not bound by the Constitution, which does not apply to private organisations. Charter Day also maintains that dress code is not sexist. Last year, a divided circuit court sided with the parents. The majority ruled that charter schools, at least in North Carolina, are bound by the Constitution and that the dress code amounted to illegal discrimination. The charter school appealed to the Supreme Court 
Attorneys for the Biden administration argued that the lower court decision was correct and urged the court to accept that ruling. A string of conservative writers and groups had urged the court to take on the case. On Monday, though, the Supreme Court declined to grant a hearing, leaving the circuit court decision in place. This indicates that there were not four justices who wanted to take on the case. As is typical, the court did not issue any further comment. The case turned on whether Chartered Day School is a private entity or a public state actor. This issue is also crucial for the brewing legal dispute over religious charter schools. If charter schools are state actors, then they likely cannot be religious. If they are private, though, religious entities would have a stronger case for running charter schools. These debates will likely be tested in Oklahoma, which recently approved what could be the country's first religious charter school. Ultimately, this may end up being sorted out via years of litigation, which could end up back at the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the court's decision to pass on the case is a win for the parents who sought to change the North Carolina Charter School's dress codes. So, if they take public money, are they state-run or are they private? That's a really interesting debate, and we shall continue to follow that. Now, we'd like to nip across the ditch, but this time to Northern Ireland. There's an article in the BBC, and it is, Dramatic cuts to education in Northern Ireland must be reversed, say experts. This is a story by Robbie Meredith. He's a Northern Irish education correspondent. He says, Numerous and dramatic education cuts in Northern Ireland should be urgently reversed, a new report has argued. The analysis of the consequences of the cuts has been compiled by nine academics from four universities. It said that short-sighted cuts risked creating longer-term problems for children which would increase demand for public services in the future. The authors call for the budget to be withdrawn and policy decisions on funding to be made solely by ministers. There have been numerous reductions in support for children as the Department of Education tries to make substantial savings. Some school principals have recently warned that cuts to school are dire and will affect support to the most vulnerable children. The Northern Ireland office has said the decisions required to live within the £2.57 billion budget set for the education services rest with Stormont's Department of Education, Stormont being the parliament in Northern Ireland. But it said the best way to govern Northern Ireland was for Stormont politicians to restore devolved government as soon as possible. The Rapid Response Report was written by academics from Queen's University Belfast, Ulster University, Stranmilis University College and Newcastle University. This report provides detailed analysis of the consequences of the funding reductions and lack of investment across multiple aspects of education provision in Northern Ireland, it said. The introduction said, it is intended to inform the general public of the cumulative impact of the ongoing cuts. Its aim is also to warn public representatives, officials in the UK and Irish governments of the far-reaching societal impact of this sudden imposition of austerity measures on education provision. The analysis covers the impact of funding cuts on a number of areas, including early years, support for children in poverty or with special education needs, mental health support and minority ethnic children. It also questions why senior civil servants have been placed in the inappropriate position of having to make significant cuts to provision with little more than ambiguous advice from the Northern Ireland office. 
Funding for education was reduced in the 23-24 budget set by Northern Ireland Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris. It was cut by about £66 million, or about 2.5%, but the impact of inflation means the real terms reduction is likely to be much higher. There has also been a significant increase in demand for support for some areas, such as school places for children with special education needs. The programs or initiatives cut as a result of the budget are those that are targeted at children who are most in need and which are designed to increase access to education, said the report. For example, schemes like the holiday hunger payment provided some extra help towards food costs during school holidays to the families of about 96,000 children in Northern Ireland entitled to free school meals. But it was cut by the Department of Education to save money. That is despite the inflationary cost of many foods being at a record high. The report concluded that there will be far-reaching and serious consequences of the cuts to the education budget. Those children who are most disadvantaged will most acutely feel the pain of this budget laid down by the Secretary of State, it said. The authors conclude that the cuts executed will have a devastating impact on those children most vulnerable and furthest from opportunity. The report included a number of recommendations, including that the 23-24 Northern Ireland budget should be withdrawn. It said that funding for things like holiday hunger payments should be restored and funding for other schemes to help disadvantaged children increased. The report also said that the department should take account of the disproportionate impact that cuts had on pupils from minority ethnic and migrant backgrounds and those living in poverty or from disadvantaged backgrounds. But the report also calls for more oversight and political accountability from Westminster and the Northern Ireland Secretary. Civil servants should not impose cuts without extensive prior consultation and explicit direction from the Secretary of State on proposed departmental spending plans, it said. It recommended that Mr Heaton-Harris must give guidance on proposed cuts, including consultation with the Irish government and the wider public. Public education is under attack all over the world, so we, we try to follow it wherever it is. It is just a universal truth that public education has to be defended all over the world. It supports the most underprivileged children and the costs of not educating people far outweigh the savings so, so-called so made by bureaucrats and ideologues. Anyway, back to you, Jean. Yes, well, thank you very much, Jeff. But we're, we're staying in with an overseas theme. Public education and education teachers are just so important. They are the salt of the earth. And we're going to hear from one of these people. We're going to hear from a very special teacher, a lawyer, Stella Young. She is a refugee from South Sudan and she's teaching in Uganda and she is quite inspiring. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Aloyo Stella Oryang, a South Sudanese refugee teacher in Palabek Refugee Settlement in Uganda. Being a teacher is the most important thing I've ever done in my life. A passion I pursued, not because of a chance, but a dream to become a teacher to be able to serve the children and the entire community. To be there for the children, to teach them, mentor them, teach them life skills, offer them psychosocial support, and reassure them every day that one day everything would just be fine. Despite my effort, many things I cannot do. I am the only refugee teacher at my school. 
I teach about 200 learners in a school having a population of about 2,500 children. Out of these, 95% are refugees. How can I teach all these learners to understand reading and writing? Or how would you do it if you were in my shoes? I wish you could just stand in my shoes for an hour. You would understand where I am coming from. And that is the reason as to why we need to have enough teachers at school because I strongly believe that there is no better and safer place for our children and youths other than the school. And this is a collective responsibility. I hereby call upon the government of South Sudan. I call upon the government of Uganda. I call upon all corporate bodies. I call upon development partners and every well-wisher out there to invest in education. Increase the funding so that we are able to recruit enough teachers at school. Pay them well and in time. Just to set an example, I earn about USD 120 per month in Uganda. How much money is that? And what can that money do for a normal person? That is why teacher salary enhancement should remain an agenda for consideration. This inconsideration is making us refugee teachers to suffer a lot at school. Most of the host community teachers are running away because the salary is small. They are going for government jobs because it is better paying. I cannot run away. When I look into the eyes of my learners, I just cannot leave. Sometimes I am like, is it because I'm a refugee? Is that the reason why I must suffer? But again, I console myself and I'm like, no, it's because not everyone has prioritized education. And I think that is the reason for which we are gathered here today. Teachers need continuous professional development. We need in-service training. We need capacity building so that we update and upgrade our knowledge. This is more important for refugee teachers, especially us from South Sudan. We hold a different qualification other than Uganda's. So to fit into Uganda's system, we need an in-service program. I must appreciate Uganda National Teachers Union for bridging the gap, but there is still a gap remaining to ensure that every refugee teacher from South Sudan continue to teach in Ugandan schools. Many times teachers' issues are disregarded. They are not taken as important. People prioritize the children. But if I may ask a question, what is education without the teachers? Why should we have the 222 million youths and children at school when we don't have teachers who are recognized and valued? I think this should be a common call for all of us in this room. Teaching is a passion, teaching is a call that we are here to do as teachers. But again, that needs support. As I conclude, our work to the children are critical. I am doing my part, do your part. Thank you so much. 
Well, we have nearly finished our program, but we can't do that until we have our great state school. Last week, we heard about a brand new school at North Melbourne. This week, we're going to hear about a brand new school, uh, New Preston High School, which is in the old uh, area where the Preston Girls High School used to be. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school is Preston High School. Congratulations, Preston High School. Preston High is one of the newest and most exciting secondary schools in Melbourne. The aspirations of their community demand an exemplary teaching and learning in the academic disciplines, artistic creativity, sporting prowess and social cohesion. The former Preston Girls Secondary College site reopened as a new co-ed Preston High School in Term 1 of 2019 when it welcomed its first Year 7 students. They refurbished the former school's two-storey heritage building. They made use of the high ceilings and generously sized spaces to create modern classrooms with space for art and science, technology, engineering and mathematics, which is STEM learning. On each level, there are breakout spaces for small group and individual projects and at the back of the main building is a central courtyard for students. The Building Authority undertook community engagement in early 2017, asking parents, students, teachers and the wider community what sort of school they would like. More than 2,500 people participated in that engagement and they summarised their comments in an engagement report which has helped shape the school's educational direction and the architect's master plan. In the 2017-18 state budget, $5.01 million dollars was allocated to the new school. The project received an additional $10.6 million in the 2018-19 to state budget. In the 2021 state budget, the school received at least $18.9 million for stages 2B and 3, sharing in the $122 million allocated for new schools. There are 682 students enrolled at this school. The ICSIA value is above average at 1,104. There are 44% of the students who have their parents in the upper quartile of income, 29% in the second highest quartile, 17% in the third quartile, and in the lowest quartile there is 10% of the students. So it's a school which has children from a variety of backgrounds with 28% speaking a language other than English and 2% Indigenous students. The Australian government provides annually $1.4 million, the Victorian government $5.6 million, fees and parental contributions amount to $517,000 and other private contributions amount to $179,000. It costs $16,328 to send a student to this school and in capital they have amounted $13 million over three years. So. Preston High School, you are the product of a wonderful community. You are our great state school of the week. 
And Dale has got just a little bit of uh, some thank yous to say here. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. Once again, I'd just like to say a huge thank you to everyone who donated for the Dogs Radiothon effort. So thank you to Oliver, thank you to Spiros Gaftouros, uh, thank you to Audra Bolton, Teresa McNally up there in Queensland, as well as Katrina Rutherford up there. These are my old schoolmates. Thanks to Casey Noodle, to Ray Sabine. Thanks to everyone who's ever donated to the dogs because a large part of our Radiothon effort came from the donations we received throughout the years. Thanks to Susan Sharp. Thanks to everyone who donated at the Creatures of Habit Bar for my 50th birthday. And thank you to Fran and Brad, who run the Creatures of Habit Bar on Brunswick Street in Fitzroy, for hosting our Radiothon fundraiser. Thanks to John Kent. And thanks to Elizabeth Anderson for donating. So many people with very little giving a great deal. It's always the people who have little who want to give the most. So thank you again to all of you. We are incredibly grateful for every cent. Well, our time has gone, dear listeners. We thank you for allowing us into your private places where you're listening. And um, we'd like to remind you that if you want to find out more about the dogs, we have a website at www.adogs.info. But from... All of the team here at uh, 3CR, the dogs team, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I ain't dead, says Joe, but I ain't dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find Joe, 
you're ten years dead. I never died, says he.